Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 10th, 2016, and my guest is Eric Hurst, the V. Dwayne Rath Professor of Economics and the John Juke Faculty Fellow at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He's done extensive research into labor markets, which is our topic for discussion today. Eric, welcome to EconTalk. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with an issue that is always challenging, which is how the labor market's doing or how workers are doing. And inevitably, in public discourse, people look at the unemployment rate, but you, and and I'm sympathetic to this, uh, you put a lot of emphasis on the employment rate, in particular, the ratio of employment to population, as many economists do. And in work you've done with Kerwin Charles and Matthew Notowadigdo, uh, you've looked at what's happened to that ratio over the last 15 years, 2000 to 2015. So talk about what's, what has happened, what do we know about that, and then we'll talk about why we think uh, it's changed. Yeah, so – the employment to population ratio, um, particularly for workers with less um, formal schooling, so I think a bachelor's degree or less, started falling well before the recession started, plummeted during the recession, and has rebounded only slightly since then. So this is a is a, is a phenomenon that um, seems pretty pronounced. It's very different than the unemployment rate, as you said, because the unemployment rate was kind of low prior to the recession started, kind of spoke, spiked up during the recession. It took a little while, but then it kind of trended back down to, to, to pre-recession levels. So what you know, we've been thinking about is the extent to which the labor market was weak before the recession even started. And we're not alone on this. You know, David Otter, some of your viewers or listeners might know David. You've talked yep. to him a few times. Um, and us have been kind of focusing on the role of, you know, declining manufacturing and how that has affected certain types of workers. And manufacturing, you know, we lost about, I don't know, what, 4 million manufacturing jobs from 2000 to 2004, 2005, which is a huge amount relative to historical periods of time in such a short time period. And so you might think to yourself, why wasn't the employment to population ratio falling sharply well before the recession started in 2004, 2005, 2006? Um, and the answer is it, it was kind of falling some, but not, not as sharply. And our, our story was that the, the housing boom came along and lifted the labor market, particularly for workers who have lower degrees of, of accumulated um, um, schooling. So, you know, kind of the story that we kind of say is that the, the housing boom masked the structural problems in the labor market. And, you know, the way you think about it is, suppose there's a trend down in manufacturing employment and they're displacing workers. And that started in the early 2000s, okay? Kind of has some, you know, some periods where it declined fast, other times where it declined slow, but it's been kind of a downward uh, decline since the early 2000s. And then you overlay that with a boom bust in the housing sector. So 
housing-related industries kind of boomed in the early 2000s, well above historical levels, and then kind of returned to those levels after, um, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009 during the recession. And those sectors are going to be things like construction, particularly for men. Once the housing boom was going on, we built a lot of houses. And, but it also affected mortgage brokers and real estate agents. And, um, you know, if we believe in some sort of wealth effects associated with um, the housing market that some people have talked about, um, restaurants were even a little bit higher than they were in 2003 relative to prior, prior periods. That income effect being that people who saw the value of their house go up felt flush and yeah, richer and yeah. then decided they could afford to eat out more often or go on vacation yeah, my- or whatever. Yeah, I don't know exactly. if I believe colleague, that, but that's the argument. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there is work kind of saying that, but let me tell you kind of what we could see in the data. So at some point, how do we kind of, you know, kind of tease out kind of these stories? And, and I'll tell you, you know, how we do that in a second. I'm going to see restaurants kind of spiked in places that had big housing booms relative to trends. So whether the causal story goes from a wealth effect to, to, to restaurants or something else, uh, you know, we could talk about that. Um, but you know, the way we kind of make progress on this agenda is we look at different regions of the country, some of which had big manufacturing declines and others didn't. So think about, manuf- uh, you know, Detroit relative to Orlando. You know, Orlando basically does Disney World. So it doesn't do a lot of manufacturing. Detroit does a lot of manufacturing. So if there's a national decline in manufacturing um, production in the U.S., it hits Detroit harder than, and, than Orlando. And in some places had housing booms, like Las Vegas. In other places, didn't, like Omaha. So you have this variation in the economy across the, the locations of the economy where some places were hit hard with manufacturing, others not. Some hit hard with a housing boom, and the others were not in the early 2000s. And you could, if you're mine, it you know, at least helps me to think about like a two-by-two two cell. You know, it, you know, we kind of look at all different types of you know, we're, you, you, our area of location is like a metropolitan area. So think about a lot of them. But, you know, some of them had big housing booms and big manufacturing declines, kind of like a baker's field. Others had neither. Some had one. Others had the other. And you can kind of use that variation. And Detroit looked like it was having declining employment to population ratios, sharp decline in employment to population ratios, far before the recession ever started. So the recession, if you kind of plotted the employment to population ratio in Detroit from 2000 to 2015, it looks like a much more continuous decline than the U.S. as a whole. And then you go to a place like Las Vegas and you plot the employment to population ratio in Las Vegas, you see that is actually employment to population ratio increased in Las Vegas from 2000 to 2015, or 2000 to 2007, and then the employment population ratio. Because their housing boom was so large. Yep, yep. And then the aggregate economy is just a sum of these two types of of patterns. So so in, in some of our work, this is kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to show that this masking, this is the word we use, the the housing boom kind of masked this weak labor market um, due to the structural decline in manufacturing well before the recession started. And again, disproportionately it hit workers with less than a bachelor's degree than workers with more than a bachelor's degree. That's really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to tell a, a slightly different story and I want you to react to it. I'm mm-hmm. playing, um, 
classroom uh, devil's advocate here because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's always tempting to tell a just-so story based on the data you have. So mm-hmm. you said starting to th- you know, from 2000 to 2015 is a big decline in manufacturing. Of course, that decline started around 1950, maybe mm-hmm. 1945. It's a post-World War II combination of increasing trade, increasing productivity in manufacturing that and we're talking about employment manufacturing, not manufacturing output, of course, because right. as we often yep. stress on this program, yeah. of course, the United States increase, is a much larger producer of manufactured goods than it was in the past. The manufacturing sector as an output is doing pretty well as a source of employment. Exactly. It's not doing well. But During then, the 2000s, that's true as well. Yeah, you so, know, manufacturing output is going up. So, and maybe later we'll talk about the mix of trade versus innovation that mm-hmm. might be causing that. But so- between 50 and, and 2000, when the manufacturing sector was shrinking as a proportion of total employment, and at the same time, the workforce is getting more educated and more opportunities are opening up for people with higher degree levels of education, people in manufacturing went and found new things to do, and that employment to population ratio didn't fall. It wasn't, it wasn't so uh, – there might be a slower trend, but it wasn't as dramatic as what we've seen – and when you say things like, well, it, you know, it fell and people couldn't find work, but, but the housing sector masked it, well, usually they find work. They just find different work. It's just not manufacturing. We didn't ha- see a long secular increase in unemployment or long secular – secular meaning over time. For those who aren't economists, sorry for using that technical word. Um, it's a bad word because it doesn't, it doesn't mean in <laughs> economics what it means in the English language. <laughs> yeah. But that, there's a long t- trend, time trend toward um, uh, lower manufacturing employment, but not lower employment generally, because people found other jobs. And it could be, and I want, this is what I want you to particularly to answer, it could be, this is a, a crazy idea, and I, I don't believe it, but it's the kind of thing you talk about in a, in a seminar. It could be that the sudden drop in manufacturing, say due to Chinese expansion, which took away employment opportunities, say, for some Americans, that that freed up a lot of workers to go be construction workers and help fuel the housing boom. Now, mm-hmm. the problem with that story is we know there are other things that help fuel the housing boom. But it is possible that the housing boom is the result of this and not the cause of the other things that we're looking at. So react to that. Okay. So I want to – there's three things that, that I want to react to. I'll, in back, I'll react backwards. So the first one is, you know, is there anything in the data we could see – whether it was the displaced manufacturing workers that helped spur the construction boom and the housing boom. And again, looking spatially allows us to kind of get some sense on this. Now, on the downside, you know, we might not see tremendous amount of migration in the U.S. Over We see some, but the migration across regions has been falling, and that means that we get more pockets of inactivity you know, in one place that takes time yep. to, to kind of work its way through if, unless migration was faster. But in the good news is for us using locations as an experiment um, to, um, you know, test different theories. The fact that people don't migrate makes it easier for us to isolate different effects. Absolutely. So why do I bring that up? Because we saw the biggest decline in manufacturing in places like Detroit, and there wasn't any housing boom in Detroit. And if you kind of correlate the places that had the biggest 
manufacturing declines. And then the places that had the big houses, housing booms or construction booms, so you could do it in housing prices or construction activity, it's uncorrelated in the data during the early 2000s. So a story like you told that there would be some kind of, you know, causal link. Reverse causation. Declining. Yeah, exactly. You would kind of ex- expect to see the places that had the big manufacturing declines to maybe have a little bit bigger housing boom than other places. And you just don't see that in the data. And so we could kind of test that. That's like something we could literally test. Um, well, you could test it at the aggregate level. I think, uh, by the way, I, I think. At the local level. That's yeah. what I was trying to test. Yeah, but, but would, isn't it, po- I mean, again, I'm just speaking. Yeah creatively here not i don't believe this story but it's an interesting story it's possible that even though migration is very low in the united states and physical mobility is relatively low residential mobility people moving to a new yep. location we're not talking about whether they can move around but the ability to move locations for work or, or home it's possible that even though there's very little at the, at the national level that after the detroit manufacturing uh trouble after mm-hmm. auto workers found much fewer, many fewer opportunities there because both plants got more effective, meaning fewer workers were needed at any one plant, and many plants moved south or elsewhere. They could have moved to Las Vegas when they heard there was some opportunities there, and suddenly a boom started. And I think that's unlikely, but that's the you want to have to you have to. I find it remarkable how little time economists, maybe sociologists, have done it, mm-hmm. have spent interviewing people in Las Vegas who worked on those yeah. houses and what happened to them and what are they yeah, doing? So are they waiting? Because yeah, we don't have, yeah, we don't have that kind of in narrative that I would love to have. The only thing I could see in the data is I could ask of the people who moved into Las Vegas. So you could observe that because some people didn't move in. Yes. Was there a disproportionate amount of them coming from places that had big manufacturing booms relative to some sort of trend? And you see a slight amount. I just want to say it's not zero. You see a slight amount, but, of workers over the age of 30, you don't see much of an effect. And that's not surprising because workers over the age of 30 just don't move that much. So, but over, you know, for young people in Detroit, they might have chosen to, to migrate to places that were other, uh, um, you know, were booming a little bit more in those construction industries. Um, but you don't see it as much from the older ones. Again, looking at the 30 plus year olds who migrated into um, Las Vegas, so again, I think you, 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 we don't have a complete way to rule out your conjecture. Just the first signs of all, you know, some of these tests that I would expect to see if your story was a first order story, we just don't see in the data. Um, so again, doesn't mean it's not there in some ways we're not seeing, but I, I, I think it's just, it's occurring in much more subtle ways then. Well, I guess the other factor would be if what was driving Las Vegas was an increase in the demand for housing uh, rather, or a reduction in the cost of building a house unrelated to labor, you'd expect to see the demand for workers to increase and workers, construction workers' salaries to go up rather than down, which is what you'd see if workers yeah. were flooding in from Michigan. And I suspect it was very yeah. lucrative to be a construction worker in Las Vegas in those times. It was, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, we find wages and work with the same way the employment rates does, which again, you know, if we're telling stories about labor demand, you know, kind of the, the narrative that we're saying is that manufacturing, you know, stopped using workers as much as capital potentially in the, the, the production of, of, of its output. So the demand for workers are going down. If that's true, we should see something that wages fall. And we do. And if you go to places like Michigan, 
wages were falling during the early 2000s. You go to Las Vegas, wages were rising in the early 2000s. Now, again, if we had a perfectly integrated labor market, those differences would be um, um, arbitraged away by people moving from Las Vegas or from moving from Detroit to Las Vegas. And we just didn't see that in the short run. doesn't mean it doesn't happen in the long run. I think that's what I wanted to get to with your – Go ahead. Um, um, the response to your other conjectures about the long-run trends in manufacturing that have been going on, I think we we agree. You know, I think all I don't know me me, me and you agree. I don't know if everybody agrees, <laughs> but me and you agree that people adjust over time. So you know, we used to be a hundred percent or eighty percent agriculture workers in you know what eighteen sixty. We're not doing that as much anymore. People adjust from sectors. The difference with the decline in manufacturing in recent periods relative to earlier periods is in earlier periods, manufacturing jobs were you know, slowly going away, but at the same time, population was growing. So new young people could come into the market and they adjust and they don't see there's enough jobs in manufacturing and they kind of reallocate to, to other sectors. In the early 2000s, we lost, as I said before, about 4 million manufacturing jobs in the early 2000 to 2004, 2005 period. You know, from 1980 to 2000, we lost about 2 million manufacturing jobs over that 20 year period. And here we lost them, you know, very uh, quickly. And it might be that when shocks happen quickly, it just takes people longer to adjust because some people get displaced and then they have to work through, you know, accumulating new skills, move into a different sector, move into a different location. And if the young are more likely to do that than older workers, then we have to have enough young to kind of clear the market. And that might just take a little time. So I don't think this is going to be a long run problem. I just think it's, um, you know, we're seeing the medium run responses to this right now. And then like the third kind of component that I wanted to just add is we have seen employment rates for men falling. Yeah you know, over this time period as well. So there is a correlation with just the share in manufacturing and the employment rate that has been moving, um, you know, at least during the 70s and 80s and 90s as well. I don't, I don't have good data, you know, much before the, the 50s and 60s. So, but in those, you know, 80s and 90s, we are seeing um, some relationship between manufacturing decline and employment rates. We raised an interesting point and thought of, carefully enough before. It's an issue we've talked about before on this program, which is, you know, is it possible that the dynamism and effectiveness of the labor market is not what it used to be? Because while it's always been true that there's creative destruction, some sectors are shrinking, others are rising. It could be that people without a college education in today's economic environment simply struggle to find alternatives to manufacturing and construction and then there's two ways to think about that, which is what you got me to, to see. One is, you know, you're a 50-year-old construction worker, manufacturing worker, and neither of those are doing very well. And there isn't an easy place to turn, and it may take a while. The more depressing possibility is that it's actually the 25-year-old worker who can't find anything because that person isn't sufficiently educated. And that's a longer, bigger problem. And the future just looks tougher and tougher for people like that. Any thoughts on that? I, I, I concur again. I mean, again, your worldview isn't that different than, than, than mine. I mean, 
at some point, I'm trying to think about ways to test this. I haven't done it yet, but me and Kerwin and, and, and Matt, um, the authors of the, the masking paper, have been thinking about this and, and, and trying to extend it in some sort of you know, scientific way to try to estimate exactly what you just said. How, what is the skill substitutability of different workers to different occupations now, and has it been different in the past? Or has it always been the same, but just the mix of jobs has, has changed? So, let me give you an example. Is it easier to move from, uh, from agriculture to manufacturing than it is to move from manufacturing to services? That's, I don't know the answer to that. That's you a good know, way to think uh, about it. And we know we went through a major transition in the U.S. economy from agriculture to manufacturing, particularly for workers with less than a four-year college degree, some a bachelor's degree. Those were the primary sectors in earlier periods, you know, and still today, it's just the share of agriculture is small relative to manufacturing. Now manufacturing is moving away. Are we seeing that it's maybe harder? And this is exactly kind of, um, you know, your conjecture that maybe it's just harder to switch to other occupations. And then that would show up in the young as well as it would be in, in, in some of the older workers. And we are seeing now that the employment declines during the 2000s for young workers seem much more pronounced than they do for um, older workers, conditional on skill. Yeah, we're good. And so that, Go ahead. You know, that, I mean, but that's something I've been, you know, kind of thinking about as well is, you know, these young workers just look different, well into the recovery compared to um, into their older counterparts. Again, holding skill constant. Well, that recovery... You know, you were talking about 2000, 2007, a time when the economy was doing pretty well, not great. But yep. There was a little recession at the beginning, but manufacturing jobs were doing poorly all the way through it. Mm -hmm. Then we have the recession, which hit another tremendous shock to construction manufacturing. Again, two sectors where low educated folks find work and those jobs may not be coming back. So right. it's um, what I'm worried about. And it's my next question. We're going to turn to younger workers in a second in specific, but if um, just to take one example, if driverless cars and trucks become a reality in the next five to 10 years, which I think they probably will, that's a that's another group of millions of workers who find decent jobs, sometimes pretty high paying jobs uh, without a lot of education as truck drivers or, or Uber drivers or cab drivers. And those jobs are, might just totally disappear. What mm -hmm. sector will those folks find work in? It's not going to be manufacturing. It's not going to be construction. What's my left? conjecture is we're going to see, you know, a continued decline then in the employment to population ratio. I mean, this is, you know, just to put in perspective, I was just doing some, some you know, work this morning that, you know, relative to 2000, 31 to 55-year-olds with less than a bachelor's degree have reduced their hours worked collectively by 10% over this time period. That's through 2015. Say it again. So our annual hours worked for this group as a whole, 31 to 55, um, with less than a bachelor's degree. They worked about 2,000 hours per year in year 2000, and now they're working about 1,750 a year in 2015. That's a 10% decline roughly 
a little over bit over a short a 10, time seven. period. Yeah. Over. Yeah, exactly. A 15 year period. And it's not getting that better. So it's not like you're seeing through the recovery, this big spike up, um, you know, back towards those 2000 levels. That is, that is a big decline for a group um, over a 15 year period. And again, it doesn't look as cyclical. And what do I mean by that? You don't get the cyclical stuff. I think, you know, usually when the economy starts to rebound, you start to see a rebound in, in hours. And, you know, since 2012, hours have been going up, but just by smaller rates than they fell during the early 2000s. So it's still to the point you're about, you know, 10 to 11% decline in annual hours for this group as a whole relative to 2000. That's a, that's a massive decline for a group who are prime age. This has nothing to do with, you know, retirement. Going to college, um, graduate school. It doesn't go into graduate. This is actually, I've thrown out anybody in the right. school, going to school. So yeah, and the 30 year olds just don't go to, to, to school as much as, as people in their twenties. So this is, you know, a rather pronounced fact that we're, we're, you know, confronting. And I think your conjecture that other technological advances might displace other jobs that they've migrated to, um, I think is, you know, on the table. It's something we might have to confront going forward. And, you know, normally I use the example all the time about the blacksmith, the blacksmith jobs disappeared around 1910, 1915, 1925, and they went and had to do other things. And if you had a specialized skill as a blacksmith, life was a lot harder and it wasn't easy and you may have struggled to find work. Um, this, this is a shrinking group, the group that you're talking about, uh, the group that doesn't have a college degree, but it's still very large is the problem. It's not like, well, there's going to be a tough, this, this is a large portion of our population. Yeah. 70%. I always tell, you know, my students or my, you know, my mom, maybe many of your listeners, we tend to view the world like, you know, the people around us. Yeah. And, you know, but it's 70% of men, 31 to 55, don't have a bachelor's degree. You know, you know, might be 68%, but, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. So think about it as, you know, a third do have a bachelor's degree. So this is a relatively large group um, still. And, and education rates have slowed down for this group as well. While we've seen gains in, um, you know, college attendance and, and such for women, you haven't seen them much as men. And I want to stress that there's many ways to get skill beyond going to college. You go, you know, apprenticeship and, you know, you could learn a craft. There's, but we have seen migration towards college over a long period of time. And that seems to have slowed down for this group as well. Yeah. And, and as I learned from Brian Kaplan, as your remarks are pointing out, yeah. attending college is not that helpful if you do not graduate. Exactly. Yes. So let's uh, let's continue to, to go deeper into this. Let's uh, talk about the other work that you've done. Um, I think this is work with uh, Mark Aguiar, Mark Bills, and Kerwin Charles on the behavior of what you call less educated young men. Mm-hmm. And you found uh, a rather striking set of patterns of behavior, both leisure and lifestyle, over this 2000 to 2015 period. So get, first tell us how you get information about these folks uh, that you're going to be talking about in terms of their use of leisure. And strangely enough, this is going to potentially revolve around video games, which (laughs) is kind of shocking, but really provocative. So uh, talk about it. Yeah. I mean, so the first thing to stress on all of this, this is ongoing research, even as we speak, it seems 
there is a tremendous amount of interest in this work. So even when we present once or twice at a conference, it's, it's picked up a, a lot of um, interest. So I shared a, a version of the, the paper with you, um, but we haven't even posted it on our website yet. So we're still a few weeks away from, um, uh, you know, kind of putting this out for public consumption. Friends, you know, that we're documenting are the data. So let me tell you about those. So using um, data from household surveys that measure labor market status. So that's going to be some of our work with the same data that I've been using to talk about employment rates um, over time. Using data on um, uh, from the American Community Service, which is like the census long form. I could get detailed data on cohabitation patterns. I'm going to use data on the American time use survey, which allows me to track how people are allocating their time when they're not working. And then I'm going to use data from the general social survey to trap happiness. So think in your mind now for these young workers, 21 to 30 is what I'm going to call young right now. So kind of just after schooling for most people, even though in the 21 to 30, some people are accumulating um, some skill and we'll deal with that as well. So 21 to 30 year olds um, with less than a bachelor's degree. Okay, so that's kind of a group that we're, we're, we're focusing on now. And so I'm gonna go through some employment stuff. I'll go through some cohabitation stuff. I'll go through some leisure stuff. And then I'll go through some um, happiness stuff that is all just kind of background information. And then I'll try to tell you how we're, we're trying to put structure on it after that. But this is just un, unconstrained data. Just the facts. So, just the facts. To the extent they are facts. I mean, you have to be a little bit to the extent that careful the about whatever. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> what people say they spend their leisure time doing. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Subject to any types of reporting error in yeah. the surveys. But this is just describing what's in the surveys. And that's a better word than facts. What's in the surveys. Um, so the first thing is, is what I alluded to earlier, that the employment uh, to population ratio or hours worked as we were talking about before have fallen much more sharply during the 2000s for young men relative to their older um, cohorts. Okay, So what I'm going to give you now is condition on men 21 to 30 with less than a bachelor's degree and then men 31 to 50 with less than a ba- or 31 to 55 with less than a bachelor's degree. And as I mentioned earlier, those 31 to 55-year-olds kind of had about a 10% decline in their hours during the 2000s. For the 21 to 30-year-olds, it's about a 15% decline. So, you know, you might think there's a 10% versus 15%, but that is massive. A 15% decline in, in, in hours is a very large decline. This is not substitution to school. So I'm already conditioning on people enrolled in full-time school. So these are of people who aren't working and who aren't going to school. And if we go one step further and ask what fraction of this group didn't work during the prior year, in 2015 relative to 2000. So in 2000, if you happen to be a 20-year-old man with less than a bachelor's degree, when I say 20-year-old, I mean in their 20s, 21 to 30, about 8% reported not working at all during the prior year. Okay. That number today 
about 18%. So what this is, 18% of this group (laughs) is sitting idle for the prior year. So the way I get this is just these surveys, to the extent that they're accurate, ask how many weeks did you work last year? And if you wrote, if you reported zero, that's what I'm kind of tabulating. There's 18% of this group that are reporting zero in 2000 and, uh, you know, 2015. So two things are striking about that. One is it's a big number to me and yep. to you obviously as well, but it's also double what it was 15 years earlier. Exactly. And that trend started again, just like these other things we were talking about prior to the recession. So you saw this increasing 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, you know, by 2007, it was like just under 12%, maybe about 11%. So 8% to 11%. And then it went 18% during the recession and it's remained relatively flat from 2010 onward. So this is, you know, for the, the labor market measured by, you know, did you work last year? hasn't improved from the depths of the recession. And, you know, we have a idleness, not in school, not working, of about one-fifth, under, you know, just under one-fifth of this group. That is stunning to me. Okay, so that's a fact. So then you might ask yourself, where are these people living? How do they eat? Yeah. So that's where we go to the cohabitation um, um, data from um, the American Community Survey. And there you could track, you know, households, just like the census does. This is exactly what it is by the census. That's what they're designed to do, to try to create a census of, you know, how many Americans there are and, you know, how where they're residing. And in this group, you see a large, again, just mirrors their non-employment rates, a large propensity the increasing propensity to cohabitate with their parents. Roughly 70% of this men in their 20s, 21 to 30, with less than a bachelor's degree, and who aren't working, live with a parent or close relative. Most of them parents, 70%. And that number was like 50% in, in, the, early, in the early 2000s. So again, we're, we, we're seeing a shift in lifestyle. Um, now you might ask, are they married? Are they having kids? And the answer is no. You know, this is not a group. If you're not working as a man in your 20s with less than a bachelor's degree, you're um, um, pretty much single and childless. Not all, but 90-some percent of them aren't married. Um, Why do you focus on men and what's the story for women? You, you don't see the same patterns for women. So you don't see the differential patterns for young women relative to young, um, for older women, conditional on skill. So for women 21 to um, 30, their decline in hours during the 2000s, from 2000 to 2015, was very similar to older women 31 to 55. And again, all groups are experiencing a decline, particularly those with, um, less than a bachelor's degree for the reasons you and I talked about earlier, the, um, you know, low labor demand for people with, with less skills. So you don't see the differential patterns for women relative, um, um, young women relative to their older women. And so that's why we kind of looked at these young men where the pattern seemed to strike out more, uh, 
in terms of idleness. And I think that's kind of why we focused on the men. I don't know if they're, you know, maybe we should be going back and looking at women too, but we just didn't see the gap between young women. Talk about young women. Talk about how they're using their time. Yeah. So when then we go to the time diaries and this is basically just for your, your listeners to get a sense. These are questions about tell me what you did yesterday. And then you put in detailed categories of, of time use. So there'll be activities like I ate my dinner from this time to this time. And I went to work from this time to this time. And for young men during the 2000s, we see this big increase, particularly young, low, uh, low educated men. You see this big increase in leisure time. Not surprising, their working is falling down and it shows up in leisure activities like um, watching TV and hanging out with friends and playing video games, etc. And then when you go into the subcategories of leisure and ask which leisure category was increasing the most, it was far and away video games. So let me just kind of give you a couple of numbers from, from our paper and just kind of make sure I get the the numbers correctly, right? That for, again, early 2000s for this group of, of young men with less than a bachelor's degree, they used to play about three and a half hours per week on video games. And now it's about six and a half hours per week in video games. So almost 100% of their increase in leisure was, 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 um, um, playing video games and on the computer. What I gave you before was video games and computer time. I should have been more clear on that. Most of that was, was, um, video game time, but the numbers I gave three and a half to six and a half was all time on the computer. So anything you do on the computer, surfing the email, going to web pages and playing video games, um, either on the computer or on a console. Um, so this is a big change. This is a, a, in terms of how people are allocating their leisure during this time period. And you don't see the same pattern for women. So women don't have this shift. That's another reason why we focused on the, on the men. So what do we make of that? Now, you, you, and your, you wrote a really nice essay, um, which we'll link to, where you talk about the fact that everybody from the ages of eight, maybe six, <laughs> depends on your house and what your rules are, but – Parents have noticed that it's kind of hard to get people off of video games or off the computer. And this is a, a phenomenon that has nothing to do with the recession, has nothing to do with education. It's just they're really fun for certain types of people, and they really like them, and it's hard for them to stop playing them. So there's a certain addictive yeah. – I don't like that word, but um, in common parlance, addictive nature to them. So it raised the question really of where what's the causation here? So give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, so – the and I, nothing we ever have has addiction in it or not. So let me give you an overview of the model that we're trying to think about, and then I'll tell how we kind of come and test that. So the overview of the model is just something comes along that makes leisure time more attractive. Okay, so when we're making our decisions to work, we compare the benefits to work relative to the cost of work. And the cost of work is, you know, you forego the wage you could have earned if you were working, but the um, you also get the margin utility of leisure. You, 
And if leisure time is becoming more attractive, that should have an effect on people's work decisions. Now, how big of an effect we could try to, we're, we're trying to answer that. But that's kind of the theory in the background. So earlier we were talking about labor demand effects on people's work effort. This is more of a labor supply effect. So how do you go out and test causation about whether people are playing more video games because they have nothing to do or people have nothing to do or choosing not to work because they want to play more video games? So what we do is we try to estimate a demand system for leisure. So what does this mean? It means, think about it in your mind, about how much of a leisure time spent on a given leisure activity out of total leisure time on one axis. So the share of leisure time on TV watching, the share of leisure time on hanging out with friends, the share of leisure time playing video games as a function of total leisure time. And suppose there's some relationship that we could try to estimate that says, okay, if your leisure time doubles, you want to more than double or less than double your time on different activities. So we then go to the time diaries and try to figure out whether people are changing their time on given activities whether that looks like a movement along one of these, what we call leisure angle curves, or whether it looks like a shift in one of these leisure angle curves. And the angle curve, again, is just the mapping between the share of time on a given activity out of total leisure time on one axis, and then having total leisure time on the other axis. And, and so the, our whole new paper is trying to, to, to do exactly this. And we use the time diary data to try to see how you, Russ, would spend your leisure time if I shocked you out of work. And so that gives me the slope of this leisure curve. So we use regional variation, just like I was talking about before. You're sitting out in California. People like you lost your jobs a little bit in California, more than people in Texas. And then I see how people in California allocated their leisure time after they lost their jobs compared to people in Texas. And then I don't only do it for California and Texas, I do it all states and I use it, you know, variation during the great recession to isolate that. And that kind of gives me the slope of these lines. And then I go in the time series data at the aggregate data and see whether the changes through the 2000s for everybody puts us on that line or are we off that line? And if we're off that line, it's a way we try to identify that there's been technological innovation in the leisure categories. I just want to I know that sounds just, a little bit confusing. No, that's cool. But, no, that's really okay, great. But that's, but that's exactly what we're, we're, we're doing. And then with that, we use the model. So there's no identification here. We use the model to figure out how much labor supply changed from a leisure shock. So we find some effect, a small non-zero effect of innovations in leisure computer activities for young men that explains about 20% of the decline in hours that I was telling you about earlier. So I just want to clarify one thing. You, you mentioned angle curves. It's E-N-G-E-L. It's not yep. Friedrich Engels. Um, no. Nope. It's uh, Ernst Engel. Uh, 
which uh, I didn't know his first name, but I cheated and looked I him up on that. Wikipedia. I didn't know his first name either. Just Wikipedia <laughs> while we're talking. Yeah, it uh, usually is the, the, out of the demands. It usually it's in money space. How much money right. you would spend on restaurants out of your total money spending, or how much money you would spend on you know vacations out of your total money spending. We've kind of defined now angle curves in time space as opposed to money space. So I have no doubt that I spend more time on my smartphone as a form of leisure today than I did in 2000 because I'm pretty sure I didn't have a smartphone in 2000. Mm-hmm. And it's it's possible that I didn't just – I don't just spend less time with friends and less time reading. I just spend more time fooling around, wasting – Let's call it leisure as we would in economics, unjudgmentally. Uh, but I concede it is sometimes wasting time. But you're making a the claim here that's – I mean, it's an incredibly interesting idea. I, I, I don't believe it, but it's a modest claim. So it's a modest claim. <laughs> so so I tell could, me which part don't you believe? Well, I've, it's hard to accept the idea that people in their 21 to 30s find so much fun from video games that they've chosen to live at home – and uh, play on their parents' computers or consoles as opposed to the idea that they're having trouble finding work and while they're unemployed, they may as well play video games because that's the thing we do now when we have extra time. So you can see it, obviously, I got a couple, both. I got a couple questions yeah, for you. Go ahead. Again, I want you to follow your own logic for, for a few more steps. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so the first step is you have a, a conjecture that these people would be less happy – under their current lifestyle than they would have been before. So I could go to the happiness data and just so download clever, the general Eric. social service <laughs> and ask them how their life is. And despite the fact that the hours worked have fallen by 15% and the propensity to live in their parents' basement has gone up tremendously, their reported life satisfaction has kind of gone up. Okay, that's one thing I want to say. Second, I want to ask you, do you believe that innovations in home production affected women's work? I mean, we have a large literature on economics talking about that. Do you believe it or not? I'm not sure. I think a lot of a lot of people are skeptical about. I think the nature of it changed. I I think uh, laundry down by the river is hell uh, for a modern woman, and she's or man, and we're all grateful that we have washing machines, but we also. That tended to push our time somewhat. Yes, women worked more. They worked more hours. Exactly. But yeah. yeah, but they also spent okay. a lot of time doing other things around the house, they'll tell you, right? Of course, of course they did. And I'm saying what we saw in the, the, the 60 to 2013 you know, period, 2015 period, is a large reduction in women's time spent on mar- uh, non-market work, on home production. And an increase in their 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 um, time spent on market work, and you know going back to Becker and before him Mincer, have kind of showed that the existence of an outside option that women did historically it's gone down recently, but historically has made Huge women's increase. labor supply more as- elastic than it men's. So there's a large literature that women's labor supply is more elastic than men's. More responsive to wages. More responsive to wage, yeah, more responsive to wage change. And um, that potentially innovations in home production have helped, not completely, but on the margin, resulted in women working more. Our paper is kind of the opposite. 
It's basically now innovations in leisure technology has drawn people away. And some of these people tend to be a little bit more elastic than they would have before. And maybe, again, this is a conjecture, maybe people are taking more leisure on the front side of their life now than on the back side of their life, you know, in retirement, because we're living longer, that uh, maybe it makes sense to take a little bit more leisure on, on, on the early part of their life. Well, I think they take it everywhere. I think they take it on the job. I think they're, play, they're people who play video games. I, I know right now people are listening to this conversation on the job. They tell me so. And I will call that leisure. You could call it investment if you want to fool exactly. yourself, uh, possibly, or console yourself, or I don't know how to describe it. But um, I just, it's a fascinating idea. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm pushing back yeah, on it. Happiness- for me, again, quantitatively, I think is the real issue for me. Yeah. Again, how big is this? Theoretically, it kind of has to go this When the price of apples go down, do you buy more or less apples? We kind of buy more apples when the price of apples go down. When the price of leisure goes down in some sort of, you know, utility sense, do we take more or less leisure? No, I, I, if theory says we should take more and then it's got to come from someplace. And now we're saying some part of it might be coming from market work because there's a time budget constraint. Yeah, but the margins are really subtle and complicated. So there's a big difference between me saying, which I, again, I'll, I think is absolutely true, that my evenings are very different today because of the, the pleasure I get from what the internet gives me relative to my evenings 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I did a lot more reading of books. I still read books. I read them online, but and I'm, that's, I'm calling it a separate thing from, say, watching YouTube videos. I don't play video games, but I do. I have the equivalent of doing that. That's yeah. reading this seventy-three articles written about the Patriots today. And I apologize. Yeah. I know you're a Dolphins fan, but <laughs> I am a Dolphins uh, fan. So, so I I spend a lot of leisure time doing that. And you're right; it has to come from somewhere. But I worked last year, so to say that there's a big difference between saying you know at the margin of spending a little more time on the internet and a little less time with my with my family, which I may not be happy ultimately about that trade-off, or a little more time on on the internet, a little less time advancing my career. I get that, but to suggest that I'm going to take a few years off so I can play with my uh, but, but video games is a little bit dramatic. We should get into the. It's almost it's a better way to say viewing it. the world, very view our our um, kind of situation. You know, as we talk about in the paper, one thing, you know, these effects get compounded. If you're close to your reservation wage, so if you're Excellent on the margin point. of working Excellent or point. not, yep, then movements for for you know in the value of leisure could have bigger effects. You and I are kind of earning well above our reservation wage, I would conjecture, and as a result, movements in the value of our reservation wage probably isn't going to have the same effect on us. So it's a confounding factor that of weak labor demand. And a more attractive outside option could potentially have these effects. Now, again, reservation I think compounded reservation, the value of outside option, the value yeah. of not working. The thing it would take me to, yeah. to get into the labor market, how much I'd have to earn. Exactly. exactly. And so it's a combination of, um, you know, the situation you and I were talking about before, um, weak labor demand interacting with things that can be moving around. The, the, you know, you know, how, how happy you are not working. And, you know, I think parents allowing you to live in your basement helps with some of that as well. Um, and 
the fact that you could do something kind of fun while you're in the basement kind of helps with that. So if we strengthen the labor market, I think, you know, maybe your conjecture isn't too far what I think what we're saying. If we strengthen the labor market such that people's market wages were farther away from their reservation wage, as we defined it earlier, then you wouldn't have this problem. The problem is because it's close to the reservation wage, things that the market wage is close to the reservation wage, things that move around how enjoyable leisure is could have more an effect um, uh, for people who's, you know, on the margin of working to begin with. So I don't know how well you could throw a stone, Eric, but somewhere <laughs> within a stone's throw by someone of you, uh, it, it, it might be a, a Cubs pitcher but to, to throw the stone. But somewhere within a stone's throw of you right yeah. now, possibly, is Casey Mulligan. Who, yes, uh, I probably, you know, back when my arm was a little stronger, I could throw that stone to so, Casey. So yeah. Casey's been arguing that a lot of the decline in employment opportunities is supply-driven. It is choice-driven by the people uh, we're talking about who, because they're receiving uh, more generous benefits in all kinds of ways and because they're the implicit tax rate, what they forfeit in benefits when they start to work is so high for low-skill workers, that's what's driving some of these uh, effects. Talk about his uh, arguments. Yeah, I don't want to... I mean, I'll tell you how I view for our group of studies. So I don't want to talk about, you know, you know, older potential workers. For these young workers, they don't receive a huge amount of government transfers. So what do I mean by that? There's not a welfare program designed for young, single, childless men. So in the data, you can actually see this. There's just none of these guys receiving any government program. So some of the stuff Casey talks about, like, you know, SNAP benefits or unemployment, um, unemployment insurance, none of these guys have had a job yet. So none of these things, workers comp, disability, none of them kind of accrue to a group that has no labor market experience and tend to be, you know, childless. So for this group, I think public transfers probably aren't discouraging the work effort. I can't, again, I can't speak to the older, older cohort, but what is there is private transfers are extremely important. As we talked about before, the way they are able to survive is through cohabitation with usually a parent, if not a parent, a close relative, like a grandparent or a sibling, but almost always a parent. And they are providing transfers in that income effect, if you will, the fact that, you know, they could still eat and take leisure has to have an effect on labor supply. Let me kind of flip it around. If they were out on the street, my guess is that would dramatically decrease the reservation wage. They would be much more willing to work even at low wages um, if, you know, it came up to a decision to, to starve or not. And of course, because so I don't that, think, go ahead, go ahead. I said it again. So I think, you know, it's a similar kind of feeling to something Casey, Casey was talking about, but not so much through the public policy dimension, but more through, you know, interfamily relationships that are providing that insurance or subsidy. I don't even know which the right word to use. It is an insurance or is it a subsidy? Um, I don't think I have anything in the data that, that distinguishes the two. I was going to make a remark that talking about the housing boom earlier, and of course, yeah, yeah. these folks get to live in their own bedroom. They're not really in the basement. Yeah. They're in their bedroom. They, yeah, yeah, exactly. In the old basement days, a, in the old exactly. days, they'd be rooming with a younger sibling, 
yeah. which would take some of the fun out of it. But since houses have gotten larger through both the fact that we're wealthier and also because we've subsidized housing artificially, and so there's uh, it's easier just to live at home. And it's uh, I'm not surprised the happiness levels are high. Um, let, let's turn now to a, a longer time trend, a long, longer time period. Uh, it's really interesting work you've done on leisure over the 40 years between 1965 and 2005 and then something that changed in 1985, which is ties into some of this in a certain way. It's uh, really interesting. So talk about what you found there in that study. And that yeah, was yeah, work with, with um, Mark Aguiar. Yeah, so Mark Aguiar and yeah. I have, you know. Besides our, our leisure paper in recent time period, Mark and I have probably have five, six, seven papers together on exploring the interaction of how people use their time away from market work um, with long-run trends in market work, business cycle trends in market work, and life cycle trends in market work. And what you're kind of referring to here is some of our, of our time series patterns. And, you know, since... 1980, we've seen the leisure time increase. And we get the orthogonal of what we were talking about earlier. There's leisure time increased for lower educated workers has been much more dramatic than higher educated workers. And again, this just kind of the flip side of the fact that market work hours have declined more for low educated workers than they have for high educated workers. And... You know, so when we start thinking from the fact that, um, you know, when we measure kind of well-being measures, there is some value from leisure going on. Now, on the other side, we're right back to where we were before. How much of it is a constraint because labor markets are poor and how much of it is a choice because labor markets are poor? And that's something Mark and I have been trying to think about. And you're starting to see that in our leisure luxury paper that we were talking about earlier about the video games. Um, but it's something that him and I have been thinking about pretty much now for almost a decade. And what changed in 1985? Because in the data, there's a really – it's an interesting uh, difference there between high and low skilled – high and low educated workers. I mean we know that the skill premium has been changing since that time. And and so what is that skill premium is though the wages of those with a four-year degree have been rising at a rate that's higher than those with less than a four-year degree. And if the returns to work are lower, you know, traditional labor theory says if a substitution effect is important, then people should be working less. And the substitution effect could be more important if there's, again, some sort of insurance mechanisms, either from the family or the government, that insures people um, when when they're not working. And I think that's kind of the patterns we're seeing in the data. The skill premium patterns and the market work patterns, and as a result, the conversely, the leisure patterns, are, are um, you know, all highly correlated with each other. And just for people who are listening at home, the difference between market work and leisure is there are other uses of people's time. You can invest in schooling. You could, you know, take care of your children. You can clean the house. You can, um, um, you know, invest in your own health care. So there's lots of different other uses of time. And we tend to measure leisure as um, those activities like hanging out with your friends, watching TV, going to the movies, 
um, those types of leisure activities, playing video games in recent periods. So prior to 1985, leisure patterns were increasing for both higher educated and lower educated workers. So, you know, for both men and women. So men were taking more leisure, usually by working less in the 1960s and 1970s. Women were taking more leisure by working more in the market, but working much less in the home sector. Kind of like we were talking about before, the increases in home production technology might have freed up some time for, for um, women to, to, to both work more and take more leisure. So higher skilled and lower skilled, at least measured by education, higher educated and lower educated men and women were tracking each other very closely in their um, leisure time up through about 85. After 85, that breaks. And when it breaks, um, it's right around the same time period people have tried to estimate that the skill premium started to change. Again, this isn't my work, but work by Larry Katz and David Otter and Kevin Murphy, other whole bunch of people kind of show that the earnings of the higher uh, educated have been growing faster. So Mark and I have been puzzled, you know, I guess I'm talking to it. Do we believe that income effects or substitution effects are important in determining labor supply? What do I mean? If your wage goes up, do you work more or less? Okay. Because it, it, it could go either way. Usually you'd say, well, I'll work way. more. I'm it, getting more it, per it, hour. But then you're wealthier, so you yeah. might decide to take some of your added yeah. wealth in the form of leisure. So what I'm going to tell you now is it's a puzzle. Mark and I have been <laughs> – maybe have identified but have been trying to solve over periods of time. So the puzzle is as we got richer in the 60s and the 70s, both lower and high-skilled, uh, uh, higher-skilled workers, leisure went down. Okay, we got richer. We all took more leisure. Hmm. Sounds like something that would be consistent with an income effect potentially being important. Then we go from 85 on and the skill premium starts to change such that the price of leisure is really expensive for high skilled relative to low skilled. And during that time period, you see this big divergence in, um, in the amount of leisure time people are taking between these two groups. You kind of look at the data and you're saying, well, maybe that suggests a substitution effect is important. The fact that as we higher educated individuals got higher wages, it was more expensive to take leisure now. That's a substitution. So how do you explain the time series patterns and the cross group patterns within the same model? Is something Mark and I have been thinking about for a long time and we have not yet solved that. So we've documented patterns, we've postulated puzzles, and we've left it at that. Well, one of the challenges is, of course, is that, again, there are a lot of margins that people make these decisions on. One of them is over their lifetime, and we don't have good data on lifetime labor supply and leisure. We have some, but it's not as good as our annual measure, say. And so it could be that people with high wages work a lot, whether wages are high when they're young-ish, and they retire earlier, which is – there's some evidence of that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, that we could. Now, I don't know if we're always retiring earlier, but we're living a lot longer. So the amount of leisure we take late in our life, even if we retire around the same ages or even work a year or two longer, is offset by the fact that people with higher education tend to live a few years longer. So you're getting more leisure um, later, at the, uh, later in the life cycle. 
But I think the other thing, which and I said this, I say this sometimes in jest, but I think it's quite serious, and it's not. I didn't think of it myself. I can't remember who told it to me. It might have been uh, Larry Anacone, colleague of mine at George Mason years back, who first suggested this to me. So I work. My working day is really about seven uh, thirty in the morning till about one o'clock at night. Uh, so I work. Uh, <laughs> that was humor. Your work. Thank you. Is I work. You know, I work about eighteen hours a day. Now, because I'm when I'm in the shower. I'm thinking about econ talk sometimes. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. when I'm doing the dishes, I'm sometimes thinking about a, a video I want to create. So I might, I got work on my mind a lot and I happen to really like it. And that's another phenomenon that's new. I think the number of people who actually enjoy their work. At the same time, I'm taking leisure all the time during the day. I'm reading that story about the Patriots. I'm watching the YouTube video. Yeah. Of Lynn Manuel Miranda that my son sent me last night. Um, <laughs> From Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. it all right. Yeah. I am. I'm. It's a very rich, multitasking, crazy world I live in compared to my dad, who came mm-hmm. home at five thirty. We had dinner, and we have, have dinner with my family still, and we don't have any devices. Just want to say for the mm-hmm. record, I think it's a really good idea. <laughs> but my dad would come home at five thirty, and then he read a book most of the night, and I, yeah. you know, we talk sometimes and. But it's a different world. And so I think our ability to measure leisure accurately is probably very challenging. I do. And I think it's more challenging now than it used to be, as exactly what you said. And particularly because things intermingle all the time, you know. And particularly what I'm most concerned about, or in terms of our work, Mark and I's work going forward, is we don't have really good measures of time use when people are at work. So our time use surveys are pretty much, you know, what time did you spend at work, not accounting for the fact that you might be working kind of and listening to your podcast at the same time. So we don't have those types of metrics. And for some jobs, as you know, where there is that type of flexibility, leisure and work bleed together. I think outside of work, we have detailed categories. And sometimes, you know, we're eating dinner and watching TV and those kind of are similar enough that it doesn't matter when I'm clumping them together. But at work, it really does miss that kind of interact. Now, on the other side, I might also be missing when you're working because you're working in the shower, (laughs) you're working. So I think that kind of bleeding in is is a difficulty that, you know, I think time use measurement is going to have to to, to deal with going forward. So we're almost out of time. Uh, Your your work's very interesting and you're a cheerful fellow, which I really appreciate, but it's kind of deeply depressing to me. Some of the things that you've documented, let's put aside these issues of causation and how mag- magnitudes, it does raise the question of whether the United States labor market is increasingly like something like Europe's, maybe for different reasons, maybe for similar reasons. But I think Europe has some real issues because they have a lot of young people who are not getting into the habit of working. They're not investing in human capital on the job. And I think the social uh, consequences of that are not going to be pleasant, and they won't be pleasant here. And one view says, well, it's just a short-run problem. Uh, I'm starting to believe that it's not a short-run problem and that um, our education system needs to change very quickly uh, with some urgency in terms of preparing more people for life either without a college degree or life in a world of driverless cars, just something a lot more flexible. 
Uh, are you as concerned as I am? And um, what what would you think are important ways we might deal with this if there's anything to be done at all? Maybe there's no policy to fix it. It's not. It's an yeah. emergent thing, and people will figure out how to deal with it if we leave them alone. So you know, I, that's exactly. I was going to say two things. One is I am optimist in the long run that I do know that things over long periods of time tend to work themselves out. People tend to adjust, etc. Now the question is, how long is that long run? And so I am pessimistic that we might be going through a period of, of time where change is occurring so quickly that it's hard to adjust with the change in real time. So there's going to be a, you know, if it's a slow atrophy of jobs and people slowly adjust, those kind of things match up together. But things are occurring so quickly that maybe that adjustment takes longer. And then we're going to go through a period like we're seeing that people are going to be not working, particularly for those with, um, you know, lower levels of skill broadly, not necessarily schooling, but training or whatever you want to call um, whatever you want to uh, kind of add those together in. And I don't think that's changing anytime quickly. And then when I start thinking about policies, you know, as a, as a person myself, there's part of me that always wants to be, oh, we need to help kind of manage the transition. But on the other part, I realize that some of the things we do to manage the transition actually just reinforce the problem. Yeah, for sure. So, and... So figuring out which policy levers to pull to fix this is hard. So I'm like you, I think, where we have to figure out in the human capital sector what it is. And then we got to find out what that friction is that's preventing easier human capital. Is it really people don't have money to get the schooling or is it people they don't have access to the training that they want to need? Um, or they the don't know about it. The schooling or sector is not competitive it, 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 enough, possibly. Exactly. Yeah, maybe when they get to the nuts. age of 12 or 14 or 16, they don't have this. So I don't know what those are, but that's where I'd want our focus to be um, as opposed to other types of programs that, you know, are well-intentioned but have disincentive effects on labor supply. My guest today has been Eric Hurst. We'll put up links to the papers we discussed. Uh, Eric, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. I had a great time. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>